As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, hope you all are having a very good Monday. If not, maybe we can help you turn it around. This is the Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Tim McMaster, as always, joined by Ken Rosenthal. Uh, Some weeks we have a lot of questions with similar themes. This week we are all over the map once we get to the mailbag. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? I am good, and last week was one of those weeks I mentioned because we had multiple questions around one topic, that topic being Fernando Tatis's suspension and his big contract that he had previously signed and how that could all shake down over time. Uh, but it is interesting, Ken, that days later, after we talked about that deal, we have another young superstar player getting a mega contract many years before free agency In fact, a rookie, the Mariners' Julio Rodriguez, probably going to be the American League Rookie of the Year, and he signed a deal which is minimum huge and maximum record-shattering this week. That's right, Tim, and it is a fascinating deal. It is a unique deal, one that we really have not seen before. Now, obviously, it's got some similarity to Tatis' 14-year, $340 million contract, with the Padres, but that deal was signed when Tatis was a player with two years of service. This is a player, Julio Rodriguez, with less than one year of service. So this is a record both in the minimum and maximum amounts for a player in that category. Now, I know this deal is really confusing in its structure. It was actually confusing to me as well. But to me, the thing I liked about it initially was the fact that for a pre-arbitration deal, it's not, in my mind, incredibly club-friendly. There's risk for the club. If Julio Rodriguez does not turn out to be the player they think or something catastrophic happens, they're stuck for $210 million. But there's also upside for the player here, and we'll get into that and how that works. So the way I reacted to it initially was, okay, here's a guy with upside in this deal instead of just signing one of these club-friendly deals for way below his market value. Now, In talking to people, as I always do around the sport, agents in particular on this particular topic, 
Some had differing views. Some said, I ah, still should have gone year to year. Soto's going to be a free agent. And when Soto hits $500 million or whatever that number is going to be, which I would expect is the number he's going to seek since he turned down 440, then Julio could drag in his wake and do even better with the guarantee than he has in this deal. Okay. But this deal does give him the opportunity, Tim, as you said, to earn much more. Now, I'll try to explain it as briefly as possible how it works. So he starts off with $120 million over eight years. It's actually 119.3, but let's say 120 for the sake of discussion. That's the first eight years, and it's essentially front-loaded. There's a $15 million signing bonus. He gets $54 million in his three arbitration years, which is more than most players get, more than Trout got, Harper got. So he's getting well-paid up front. Now, after the seventh season, after 2028, the Mariners are going to have a decision. And the decision is going to be whether to pick up an option that at minimum will be worth $200 million over eight years. And you might say, well, that's a lot of money. But at the same time, if Julio Rodriguez is the player they think he's going to be, it's a $25 million AAV. They're going to want to pick it up. Now, the price of that option can increase. It can increase based on his MVP finishes. And I'm not going to go through each one, but it can go to... $240 million for eight years, $260 million, $280 million, all for eight years, ultimately to $350 million for 10 years. It's all based on MVP finishes. I have all the details in my column today. They've been out there. And I would think that he's going to get a couple of top 10 MVP finishes at minimum, and that should get him to a level about $360 million in this deal. That's pretty good. Now, I know from an AAV perspective, it might not be great, but different players, different agents consider different things with different structures and ways to go about it. Bryce Harper's deal with the Phillies isn't a great AAV deal. It's a deal that averages about $25.4 million. So he wanted the guarantee. He wanted the length, 13 years from the Phillies, $330 million. This deal bears some similarity to that one, obviously. And much different circumstances, a player with less than one year of service versus a player who was a free agent. But I'm just saying that not all deals are created the same way or players don't always have the same goals. So ultimately, I feel this is a win for Rodriguez and I feel it is a win for the Mariners and a win for baseball. And the reason I say that is because for so long, I've heard from fans who say, oh my gosh, this player, they're all going to end up with the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Mets. Guess what? Fernando Tatis Jr., when he signed the deal, forget what happened after that, but when he signed the deal, one of the top bright young talents in the game still is, still can rebuild his reputation and all that. He stayed in San Diego. Julio Rodriguez, one of the top young players in the game, stayed in Seattle. That, in my view, is a healthy trend for the sport. What is troubling from the union's perspective, and I don't expect fans to care about the union's perspective, but when you're mindful of the history here of the salary structure, you'll understand where I'm coming from. If every pre-R player, every young player signs an extension, you're going to have very few going to free agency, very few setting the market like Juan Soto, both in arbitration and in free agency. That's not the way they historically have operated the union. It's not ideal for them. But at the same time, what is an agent's goal? What is 
anyone's goal in the sport. It's to make the player happy. And if the player is happy, well, that is the ultimate that you can achieve. Now, you might say, okay, Ken, what about Michael Harris? Michael Harris is a very comparable player, at least in terms of this year's performance, to Julio Rodriguez. Now, he didn't start with the Braves from the start of the season, but he likely will finish first or second in Rookie of the Year, just like Julio Rodriguez. Michael Harris signed a deal for $72 million. That's just slightly over one-third the guarantee that Julio got. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, you can blame the agent. You can blame the system that was supposed to, under the new CBA, reward young players with the pre-arbitration bonus pool, with the higher minimum salaries, in a way that would have deterred them from signing these kinds of deals. You can also blame the way things operate in baseball, which is certain agents, and I'm not saying it happened in this case, I don't know, but certain agents operate out of fear of other agents taking their clients, and they want to get the guarantees before that happens. That's reality, folks. It happens. So I discuss all of this in my column today. I try to make it as coherent as possible. You'll judge whether I did or not, but it's a very interesting situation. In my mind, it's healthy, healthy for the sport, certainly healthy for Julio Rodriguez and healthy for the Mariners. It's a little bit of a risk for the Mariners because if Julio Rodriguez isn't the player, they think that option decision becomes more difficult. And at the very least, he's got the player option if they decline the club option. And if he picks up the player option, that's how he gets to 210. So, Tim, I hope that sums it up. I don't know if it does. I don't know if our listeners are still confused. But again, it's a very fascinating structure And I do expect that it's something we'll see in the future with other young players, and it will maybe protect them a little bit more than they've been protected in the past. I think you did a great job of hitting all the different angles on this, which is what's fascinating from the agent standpoint, the team standpoint, the player standpoint. There's so many things that go into this. If you do want to read that article, uh, you can, and you're not a member of The Athletic or a subscriber to The Athletic, you can become one. $1 for six months, $1 a month for six months. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And with that, let's open up that mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved in the show next week or down the road, whenever a great question pops into your head, you can call us 646-543-7072 or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Since we started talking about Julio Rodriguez, a young player in his rookie season, I thought we would go in a direction about young players in general and how teams treat them when they bring them up. And that comes from voicemail. Hey, Ken, Reggie from the greater Austin, Texas area. I've got a question, and I know this is not in keeping with the pennant chase theme, but I've been thinking about the new landscape with the rules concerning the draft and the lottery. And it definitely seems to me a lot of teams are bringing up more of their prospects to get them a fair amount of look in the major leagues. And my question is, will we see more teams start to do this and maybe have even more teams bring up their highly touted players earlier? Uh, I still remember the 91 Astros who were, I'm sure, viewed by some as tanking, but that team had on its roster a rookie or I think a very young Kurt Schilling, a rookie Jeff Bagwell, a rookie Luis Gonzalez, 
a young Ken Caminetti and a young Steve Finley. And that team went from having the worst record in the National League that year to a 500 club in 92 to a winning record in 93. And they would only have one losing season over the next 13 years from 93 to 05. And it just seems maybe a few other teams ought to look at what the Houston team did in 91 and speed up their rebuild by truly getting a feel for which of their top prospects are legit big leaguers. Well, Reggie, it's a good question. And we have seen teams become more aggressive in promoting their young players. And I think the new CBA has something to do with that. Actually, I don't think there's any question about that. There is something now called the Prospect Promotion Initiative. And basically, it's a complicated formula, but it encourages teams to promote players, promote them from opening day, keep them on the roster the whole season, and qualify for a draft pick if they do that with certain players, with the right players. That's an incentive. And that, I think, has led to a Julio Rodriguez being with his team from opening day. So that's a healthy thing. Is it enough? No. And there's always going to be some form of service time manipulation, for lack of a better term, if you're counting days as a way of figuring out when players qualify for arbitration or free agency. That's just the reality of it. But this does encourage things to kind of move along a little bit quicker. Now, I'll explain what the PPI is, the the initiative. Players with 60 days of service or less who have rookie eligibility and are included in two or more of the preseason top 100 prospect lists put out by Baseball America, MLB.com, or ESPN are eligible. So it's young players with not much service who qualify as rookies and are basically top prospects. If in the time before they hit salary arbitration, those players go on to win Rookie of the Year, finish top three in MVP voting or top three in Cy Young voting, their team gets an amateur draft pick following the end of the first round. So basically, what I said initially was not exactly right. Those players not only have to come up and be there the full year, they have to win some kind of award. But that is an incentive for teams. There's no doubt about it. And hopefully it will lead to a more aggressive posture in the future toward the promotion of young players. I don't know that it's going to create a tidal wave or anything like that. It's not enough to do that. But in the case of some players this year, yes, it made a difference. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
All right, next question comes from Steve. He says, hey, Ken and Tim, my question is whether you think the new balance schedule will create a competitive disadvantage for West Coast teams that I'm assuming will have to travel more next season now that they will play fewer games against nearby teams in their division and more games against other teams in the league, which are located further away. Steve, this one really got me thinking. And my first reaction was to kind of look at the Mariners' schedule because they're the team that generally travels the most and compare it to their schedule last season. And when I just did a cursory comparison, I found that the amount of times they would go east was about the same. So, of course, I was not confident in my own observations here because it's somewhat anecdotal. So I contacted Major League Baseball and asked them about this. And basically, their feeling is that the amount of travel will not be significantly different in any one year and over the course of, say, a three-year span, will be roughly the same. And the reason for that is, under the current system, with interleague play, a team like the Mariners that plays in the AL West, well, once every three years, their competition will be the NL West, so there's a little bit less travel, right, going up and down the West Coast. Other years, they'll play the NL East in interleague play, and then there's more travel. This way, it all kind of balances out over a three-year period. It might be more or less over one year. And the way they did it with Seattle, when they go to New York, they play Baltimore also. When they go to Cleveland, they play Chicago. These teams are grouped together, or these opponents are grouped together. Then there are the Dodgers, and they have a situation where they go to New York and Baltimore, and then Texas on the way back. So listen, it's never going to be a perfect schedule. That's just reality. But what MLB tried to do was create as fair a schedule as possible with regard to travel. And keep in mind the benefits from this new balanced schedule, too. And the benefits are pretty clear. From a competitive standpoint, when you have a wild card race, everybody's going to be facing the same types of opponents. It's not going to be as imbalanced as it's been in the past. And also, from a marketing standpoint, it's clearly healthy. A fan will get to see Mookie Betts much more often than he or she might have in the past. Mookie will come to, say, Minnesota every couple of years instead of every six years, whatever it was before. So from baseball's perspective, from a business standpoint and from a competitive standpoint, this really lined up well and without the expense of crushing teams on travel. I get what you're asking. My initial reaction was, yeah, this is going to be a lot more travel. But what I'm told is... It's not. That's great. And the fact that people can ask us questions on this show and then you go to the league, get the answer, bring it back. It's, it's good stuff. All right. Next question is another uh, voicemail. Let's go right to that. Hi, my name is David. Uh, I had a question about the playoffs and streaks at the end of the regular season. So, of course, baseball is a streak of game both individually for players and for teams. And you often hear that an important predictor of playoff success is getting hot at the right time. I was wondering if you're aware of any data that might exist relating to this, for example, that might define what kind of regular season hot streak truly often does carry over into the playoffs. And on the flip side, if you can think of any teams that went into the playoffs cold but still had success. Thanks a lot. Bye. David, it's funny. When people talk about teams getting hot at the right time in the playoffs, my impression is they mean in the playoffs, during the playoffs, because what happens before that is not necessarily an indicator one way or the other. And we've seen countless examples of this over the years. Now, 
Let's go to last season. The Cardinals, they win 17 straight in September. Finish out, I believe, 19 of 27 is what they won. And they go to the wild card game against the Dodgers and they lose right away. Now, granted, it's a wild card game. It's a crapshoot. It's a small sample size, all of that. But they won 17 straight and they still were only the wild card. So they got knocked out. Now, more to the point, perhaps, David, I can point to two teams, one in recent memory, one a little bit beyond that absolutely stumbled and then had really good outcomes. 2017 Dodgers. They went 1-16, 1-16 in a stretch in late August that extended to mid-September. They went to Game 7 of the World Series against the Astros. Of course, the Astros, that was the World Series in which they stole signs illegally. The whole season they did that. So it's tainted. Who knows? Maybe the Dodgers would have won the World Series. At least they got to Game 7 despite that 1-16 run in late August, mid-September. An example that is often cited in New York the 2000 New York Yankees. That team went 3 and 15 to end the season. 3 and 15. There was panic in the streets. And what did that team do? It won the World Series. So, I don't know that there is any good predictor of postseason success based on what happens in September. And when you talk about getting hot at the right time, look at the Braves last year. Certainly they did. Their bullpen came together, and then in the postseason, they got on this incredible run. The 2019 Nationals, the same thing. They had a good amount of good fortune, as did the Braves, as does any team that wins the World Series. But I don't know that September is any predictor. What I do know is that as we approach this postseason, if you're in the wild card round, right, that new extra layer of playoffs, you've got to play four rounds to win the World Series. Four that's going to be really difficult. And I'm anxious to see how that all pans out because even if you get hot, you might be exhausted by the World Series. The one team I was thinking about that that started hot and then went on a roll or went on a roll and then kept going through the playoffs was the 07 Rockies, right? They won, I think, 11 in a row or Good something one. heading into the playoffs. Swept until the World Series, then had a huge layoff and then got swept in the World Series. But until that point, they were they were definitely riding the wave as well. Uh, next question comes from James. Uh, Cardinals play late season games against the Padres, Dodgers, and Brewers. Some of these games could be meaningful. They may all be meaningful. If you are the opposing manager and the game is on the line with pool holes at the plate, can you pitch around him? Or if he is on the verge of a historic milestone, such as home run number 700, would you face pressure as a manager to pitch to him? This is a good question, and it might come up, right? But my answer is very simple, and it's honed from years of covering the sport. And it comes from guys like Larusa and Leland and Showalter and the managers that I covered earlier in my career, their philosophy is always play the game, honor the game. So don't do anything extra cute. Don't do anything you wouldn't normally do. Play the game properly. So if you have to pitch around Pujols, if the situation dictates and the playoffs are on the line, you're not worried about his 700th home run. You're worried about your team and you have to manage accordingly, adjust accordingly. So I wouldn't expect any shenanigans of any kind. Now, against a non-contender, maybe a little bit different. But even then, you have to honor the competitive spirit of the sport. And you have to try to win every game. So I would expect teams would treat Pujols as the game situation dictates and do nothing else. 
We'll see. It's certainly getting interesting with Pujols, and that is a great schedule down the stretch. Matt says, with all the different metrics for individual players and teams, are there any that show deviations? A lot of the metrics you seem to focus on averages or ratios, but those types of metrics don't capture the volatility that teams might experience in scoring or pitching throughout a season. Is there anything that measures consistency in these areas? Ooh, that's a good one, Matt. I don't know that there's a metric that measures consistency. I do know we can get granular and we can look at month by month statistics for teams and players. We can track their trends. We can see who is consistent, but a pure metric for consistency. I don't know that we've come up with that one yet. And I don't know that we need to, for instance, with Paul Goldschmidt, you go to his month by month numbers this season. They're incredibly consistent. He's an incredibly consistent player on top of being an incredibly great player. So that to me is the best way to look at this kind of thing. I will say this, and it's a little bit off topic, but I don't care. It's something I'll address anyway. Defensive metrics I find maddening, and I'll tell you why. I'm happy we have them. I'm happy we have more than fielding percentage and errors now because those were not sufficient. And they don't tell us a full story. But the two public metrics I use most are defensive runs saved and outs above average. Now, when I look at individual players or even teams in those metrics, sometimes the outcomes are quite different or the ratings are quite different, I should say. That bothers me. Now, when I've talked about this in the past and I've brought it to the attention of guys like Brian Kenny, my former colleague at MLB Network, He sort of huffs and puffs and says, ah, well, it's more than we had in the past. No, not good enough. Not good enough because we're looking for some precision. And it's so hard with defensive metrics, with shifts, with the way people are pitched or are pitching. There's so many variables that go into it. I don't know that we'll ever get it to a point where we want to get it. But it does bother me when you're talking about consistency. It's a different kind of consistency than you asked about. But when you talk about consistency, that's an inconsistency. The disparities that we sometimes see between those two metrics, that really bugs me. All right. Charles says, looking ahead to uh, Otani in the offseason, love the show. I have a question about Otani coming up in the offseason with free agency eventually. Have you heard anything indicating that Otani would prefer to play with a Japanese compatriot in his next stop? Could we be seeing him teaming up with Yu Darvish or say a Suzuki, for example? Charles, I'm guessing you're either a Cubs fan or a Padres (laughs) fan, hoping for the best. I don't expect that's going to play any role. And I remember years ago when Japanese players first started coming over, I can't remember who it was. I'm not ducking it. I'm just not remembering. There were situations where certain players preferred to be the only Japanese player. There were certain situations where the player preferred to be with a Japanese teammate. It wasn't always consistent. But what will govern Shohei Otani's free agent decision if it gets to that point, and I expect that it will? It will be governed by what governs every red-blooded American and non-American's free agent decision. Money! Simple as that. And I don't know that he's going to care about having another Japanese player on his team or not. I just don't even expect that to be a factor. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. All right, final question. It comes from voicemail. Ken, this is Noah calling you again from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Unconventional question, but it's for you. How did you start wearing the bow tie? Was it something that you always wanted to do and wear? Is it something that Fox asked you to wear and you just stuck with it? How did those bow ties for a cause that you wear every game become a thing? Take care. Noah, thanks for the question. And I wrote about this a long time ago when I was at foxsports.com. And I probably should bring it back once in a while because people do ask me this. And it's not necessarily what you would think. Actually, you did hit the nail on the head. Fox made me do it. This goes back to the 2010 postseason. NLCS. Giants versus Phillies. And someone from Fox comes up to me by our production trucks in the parking lot at Citizens Bank Park and says, hey, David Hill, who was the head of Fox Sports at the time, really the man who invented Fox Sports back in 1996, he wants you to wear a bow tie. And I was really upset by this because the way I was raised... You do your job, raised in the business, I mean, not raised by my parents. You do your job, and that's what's defined you. That's what makes you stand out and nothing else. No showboating, no look-at-me stuff, nothing like that. Wearing a bow tie, to me, was kind of <laughs> the antithesis of all that. But he was the boss. 
So without knowing how to wear a bow tie or tie a bow tie, I started wearing them. And I remember that first game, I wore one, and Joe Buck came down to me and I said, I was playing the game under protest. My family was opposed to this. I'm opposed to this, but I'm playing along. And I wore the bow tie throughout that postseason. I had someone at Fox tying it for me every game because I didn't know how. And then that offseason, a guy named Dahani Jones, you might remember him, NFL fans. He used to play for the Eagles, the Giants, maybe a couple of other teams as well. He started the bow tie cause, the foundation that has bow ties to represent all of these different nonprofits. And they partner with these nonprofits and they make the bow tie. Part of the proceeds go back to those organizations. And Dahani called me and said, hey, I have this organization. We'd like you to wear our bow ties. And initially my reaction was, no, I don't ever want to wear a bow tie again. But I then thought, you know what? Fox is going to make me do this. I might as well get some control over it. And that is how it started. And that started with the 2011 season. And I've been wearing the bow tie and each one representing a different charitable organization ever since. I still don't really feel comfortable at times with the whole thing. But it's gotten to the point, it's been over 10 years, right? Where if I don't wear a bow tie on TV, this used to happen in MLB Network. If I didn't wear a bow tie, people would say, hey, whoa, whoa, where's the bow tie? I never wore one on MLB Network, only for the Fox games. So even if I did a game for MLB Network and I wore a regular necktie, fans would be saying, hey, hey, bow tie, what's going on? So it is part of my identity, and I will say this. David Hill, who made me quite upset, was absolutely right. His whole goal was to distinguish me. And on television, that is a good thing. You want something different, something to make you stand out. And years after that, he no longer is with Fox Sports. He's somewhere else in the Murdoch empire, I guess. But every time I see him, it's every couple of years, he'll say, hey, I was right. And he was right. And I can't deny it. And I thank him for it. And that's the whole story. I did it under protest, but now I do it with great pride. And actually, it turned into a really good thing. So what was a negative in my mind ultimately became this amazing positive. And we've done some really cool things with it and will continue to in the future. And as long as I'm on TV, I'll be wearing that bow tie. I can't believe that we had never gotten that question before. First of all, I'm just stunned that, uh, in fact, I, I looked back because I was like, I think we got this one early on, but we hadn't. And it's uh, good to get that story in there. Good stuff. Tim, um, yep. most people are just appalled by it. They don't want to ask a question. <laughs> they don't want to know why. It was. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? But you, well, I have one follow-up though. You actually can tie them yourself now, right? Yes. I learned that first <laughs> off season and to this day, there are days where I have a little bit of trouble because it's kind of a counterintuitive <laughs> way to do it. But yes, I do know how to tie them now. And I don't necessarily like the way they look on me because as people might have noticed, I'm a short guy. So in my twisted head, the necktie, the longer tie gives me some length in my appearance. Of course, that's not true. I'm still two feet shorter than Aaron Judge no matter what I'm wearing. But... In my head, that's how it goes. 
All right, great stuff, Ken. And uh, if anybody wants to get involved in the future on the show, of course, call us, 646-543-7072, or the email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Full week of baseball content here on the Athletic Baseball Show feed. Uh, Speaking of young stars getting big contracts and team-friendly deals in some standpoint, uh, Alex Anthopoulos back in Starkville for the third time. He's making a run at Ken's record. Uh, third time for Alex Anthopoulos. That'll be a good one. He's always a great guest with uh, Jason and Doug. And then it's the roundtable coming up on Wednesday. Thursday is the 3-0 show. Of course, Friday, DVR and Law. Uh, good stuff all week long. Uh, we will be back with you next week. It is Labor Day, but I think we're planning to record, Ken, if that's cool with you. It sounds good to me. We'll talk to everybody again.